Almost, but not quite. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has made his main point. Christ is supreme. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who died for us and rose again. We have to stick to Christ. Having received Christ as Lord, be strengthened in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Our growth as individuals, our growth as a church is to be in Christ. We're never with Him, we're never to grow away from Him. We need to keep Him and what He has done for us in His death and resurrection absolutely central. And as a result, we need to grow more and more like Him in our character. To put off the old way of thinking and living and to put on the new self, which is becoming more and more Christ-like. To get rid of sexual sin. To get rid of relational sin. Anger, wrath, malice, obscene talk. And to put on love and compassion and humility and forgiveness and kindness. Because that is what Christ is like and we are to be like Him. For we are in Him. And whatever, to, we are, whatever we do, we are to do it for the glory of God. We are to do it in thanksgiving to God for what He has done for us in Jesus. In the congregation, in the home, in the workplace. We do not need to add anything to Jesus. Real Christian growth starts with Him, continues in Him, and leads us to be like him in our character. Now, the four verses that we're looking at today, it's actually five verses we're looking at today, form the last part of that section that starts at the beginning of chapter 3. The section that deals with how we're to live the new life that we have in Christ. Remember the motivation for living the new life was Christ and what he's done for us. We died with Christ, forgiven through his death. We've been raised with Christ in his resurrection, seated with him in heaven. And so this new life that we have in Christ is to cause a change in our character. Something that we need to do deliberately. But today as we see this new life, this new way of walking, we're looking not so much about um, the, the things we looked at last time, in terms of putting what we've put to death and what to put on, but how we are to relate to the world. Well, friends, Jesus is Lord of the universe. And the gospel is for people all over the world. People from every tribe and language and nation need to hear the gospel because God has chosen people from every tribe, language and nation to be his. And so Paul has been going all around the world preaching the gospel and starting churches. God has gifted some people in his church with those kinds of gifts, enabled them to do that. He's gifted other people with being able to preach the gospel publicly. He's given other people the ability to, to preach the gospel privately in a very effective way. He's given all of us ways of promoting the gospel in our own lives. Not every Christian can be like the Apostle Paul. In fact, I don't think anyone here is like the Apostle Paul. Well, it's really God hasn't just gifted us in that way. Not everyone is like even Timothy, who was with Paul, wasn't Paul, 
But he was gifted to publicly proclaim the gospel. Not all of us are evangelists, in the strong sense of the word. Not all of us have got that great gift of just going bang, 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 going around talking to everyone about Jesus. Some of you have, I know. But God wants all of us to play a part in seeing his gospel go out. If we are doing what the first part of chapter 3 tells us, seeking the things that are above, having our goals and ambitions shaped by the gospel, wanting to see God glorified as people coming to know him, then even though we're not gifted preachers or evangelists, we want to do our part. So how can ordinary people like us, who have been given an extraordinary new life in Christ, and are seeking to live it out, how can we play our part in doing that? What is the role that all of us are to play for the message of Christ to go out? Well, the two big things that Paul talks about here are these. Persevering in prayer and promoting the gospel in our lives. Persevering in prayer, promoting the gospel in our lives. Let's have a look at the first one. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, the word steadfastly there means being faithful in prayer, being devoted to prayer, and to busy ourselves in prayer, to spend much time in prayer. Friends, prayer is important, isn't it? We are to persevere in it. Someone once said the easiest thing about praying is quitting. It's true. Now, some people find praying really easy, and if that's you, rejoice. But most of us find it hard. And the Holy Spirit tells us here to keep going. Don't give up. And if you have, then we'll get back in the habit. It's good to pray by ourselves. Set aside special time each day to, to, to pray. And to pray little prayers all day. It's good to pray with family and friends. So our conversations and our meetings with our brothers and sisters in Christ can be turned into prayer. It's good to pray as a church community. Whenever we gather, we make sure we're praying. It's good to pray specific times like expecting. I encourage you to come and be part of that so we can pray in a more extensive way for the ministry. Paul says continue steadfastly in prayer. Devote yourself to it. It's important. Because, friends, if the gospel is going to go out from among us, then we must pray. Not because prayer itself is powerful, but because the God whom we pray to is powerful. And we really are dependent on him to act. See, Jesus Christ is ultimately the one who builds his church. And so we need to ask him and pray that he will do it. If our church is going to grow, if we're going to reach other people with the gospel, then ultimately God is the one who's going to do it. And we must acknowledge that, because otherwise... When it happens, we'll be tempted to take the glory for ourselves, and God won't have that. We are junior partners with God in his work in the world. We are dependent on him to act. So we need to pray that he would. We need to keep on doing that. In addition to perseverance, there are two other things that should characterize our prayers, and we see them in verse 2. They are being watchful, and being thankful. Watchfulness and thankfulness. 
What does it mean to be watchful? Well, the word is literally keeping alert or keeping awake. Right? If the easiest thing about prayer is quitting, then the second easiest thing must be falling asleep. Right? Sometimes when I pray at night, I fall asleep. Do you have that problem? The disciples have the same problem. Right? Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes off and prays and comes back and there they are, fall fast asleep. So Paul may be practically telling the, the, the Colossians, you know, keep alert when you're praying, don't fall asleep. But I think it's far more likely that he's talking about being ready for Jesus' return. Uh, that is, for the second coming of Jesus. The Bible often uses watchfulness uh, to mean being prepared for the end. And if that's what he's talking about, he's saying this, in your prayer life, pray in such a way as to be ready for Jesus to come back. Really expect it to happen, and pray accordingly. When you pray for yourself, when you pray for your brothers and sisters, when you pray for your church and for other churches, pray in light of the fact that Jesus will come to judge the world and wind up history. If you know that Jesus is coming, then pray in a way that reflects that. When you're praying for the unsaved, pray seriously in light of the coming judgment. When you pray for your fellow brothers and sisters who are struggling, pray joyfully in hope of the glory that is to come. When you pray for the sick, look forward to the time when sickness will be no more. When you pray for the nations of the world, pray that, remember that this world will come to an end. Be watchful, be expectant. Have the second coming in mind as you pray. The second thing that should characterize our prayer is thanksgiving. As on the one hand we pray to ask God for things, on the other hand we, we have to thank God for the things that he's already given us. That's a vital accompaniment to prayer. And we've talked a lot about thanksgiving, haven't we, as we've gone through Colossians. Because Colossians talks a lot about it. It keeps reminding us to be thankful. Remember our key verse in, in, in chapter 2, 6 and 7, As you receive Christ, you use the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Remember how we're to be thankful in church. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdoms, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. As we sang across the great divide, were you thankful for what God has done for you in Christ? Remember, it's not just in church. We're supposed to show our thanks to God in everything. In verse 17 of chapter 3. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whether it's at home or at work, we live to say thank you. And now Paul says that thanksgiving is to accompany our prayers as well. It's a verbal spoken, articulated thanks in addition to the thanksgiving of our lives. Friends, it's important to ask God for things. God, God tells us to do that. But the Bible also keeps on reminding us to say thank you. Be grateful to God for all the good things he's given us and most especially for the salvation he's given us in Jesus. For God gave his son to die for our sins Jesus paid the price. He, he took the punishment for us on our behalf so that we could be rightly forgiven by God. He rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and gave us His Spirit so that we can know Him as Lord and know God as our Father. 
He's chosen us and made us his own. All that because of his grace, his undeserved kindness to us. He continues to look after us and bless us day by day. He continues to nourish us and keep us in the faith year by year. He has plans for our future to be in glory with him in eternity. How could we not be thankful? How could we not have hearts and prayers that are full of thanksgiving? If we are gospel people, then we will be thankful people. And our prayers will reflect that. Furthermore, if we're praying that God would grow his gospel from among us, then we need to thank him for what he's done already, along those lines. Thank him for the people that he's brought to us. Thank you for thank him for the opportunity that he's given us and for all the all the infrastructure that enables that to happen. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. And then Paul makes a specific prayer request. He wants the Colossians to pray for him and for Timothy, and especially for their work of evangelism. Verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. The word mystery there means secret, something that couldn't have been known unless God revealed it. The mystery of Christ or the secret of Christ is, of course, the gospel, isn't it? It used to be a secret before the death and resurrection of Christ. No one knew how God was going to save the world. It was a secret, but, but now it's not a secret anymore. Paul's to declare the mystery of Christ. He's to public announce, publicly announce the contents of the secret to the world. And he wants the Colossians to pray that God would open doors for that to happen. Now, when Paul is praying for open doors, it could mean that he's actually asking prayer for that literally. Remember, he's in prison. He's in chains, he says. So he might be asking to pray that he will be released so he can preach the gospel even more. God is sovereign and, and that's a good prayer, isn't it? Or he might be praying just asking generally for lots of opportunities to, to share the gospel. Either way, it's a great prayer. We should make it our prayer that God would open doors for the gospel. He would create opportunities for, for the gospel to go out. And so when we pray for our workplace, when we pray for our families, when we pray for our church, when we pray for our community, we must pray for open doors for the gospel. Pray that God in his sovereignty would set up circumstances that, that, will, that will enable that to happen. Christianity Explorer, starting on Tuesday, pray that God would open doors there. That non-Christians will come and hear the gospel. That, that Christians would come and be established in the gospel and be prepared better to, to, to share it with others. In your own evangelism, you can pray that God will open doors for you. That God would put people across your path that you can talk to about Jesus. And conversations would op open up that would lead to the gospel or an invitation to, or an invitation at least to church or a guest night or Christian Explore. God is the one who opens doors. He is sovereign. He is in control. So pray that he will do that. And you know he does. He answers prayers. So be on the lookout for the open doors he, he, he gives. But in this context, however, Paul is asking them to pray for open doors for him, the, the evangelist, the preacher. 
And that's a really good prayer for us to pray for our evangelists and preachers too, isn't it? And when doors have been opened, here's the next thing to pray for them. Verse 4. He prays, please pray that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Pray that those who have been given the charge and the opportunity of speaking the gospel would do it clearly. Because clarity, that is really important, isn't it, when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is a message from God. It is the message that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins, that he rose again in glory. And we need that message to come across loud and clear. We need to be understandable. Not all mangled and jumbled, so it's really hard to work out what's going on. People need to be able to clearly understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we need God's help in order to do that. Because remember, we're dependent on him. In everything. Including our evangelism. So not only are we to pray that by his spirit he would open people's hearts to his word, also pray that those who proclaim the word would do it clearly. That it won't be lost beneath inordinately, inordinately obscure nomenclature. Alright, in other words, big words that no one can understand. Pray that the, whenever you have an evangelistic event, whenever you have a Christian explore, whenever you have a church where, 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 where non-Christians will be present, pray that the people who are speaking will do so clearly. And that's a good prayer for us too as we share the gospel with others. But again, Paul's not specifically asking them to pray for himself, he's asking them to pray for him. Now, if Paul the apostle needed people to pray for him that he would preach the gospel clearly then surely all our preachers and evangelists need that as well right, so please do pray for us pray for me that every time I preach the mystery of Christ would come out loud and clear pray for our evangelists pray for the people of us who are very gifted in evangelism who do lots and lots of sharing of the gospel with others we really stand at the coalface at work or at college or at school or pray that God would not only open doors for them but also that they would speak the gospel clearly. And that we, when we have opportunities to do that, that we would do it clearly. You know, it's always tempting for people doing evangelism to water down the gospel. It's always tempting to make it a bit less demanding bit less confronting, more accommodating. Because to preach an easier gospel is to preach a gospel people want to hear. And we love people so much that we so much want them to become Christians that will, that will soften the message to make it easier for them. But, but a watered down gospel is not a gospel that will save anyone. If we love God, we will tell his truth. And if we love people, then we will tell them the truth. No one's going to thank us in the last day for giving them a watered down Jesus instead of a true one. What a down gospel don't save. So pray that those who speak the word will do so clearly. Which, Paul says, is how we ought to speak. Now I noted just now that none of us are really like Paul. And Paul didn't expect everyone to be like him. 
didn't tell the Colossians to all leave their jobs and join him traveling across the Mediterranean didn't say you all got to stand up and preach at the city streets but they were all part of the team they were partners with Paul and Timothy and all the others who were working to bring the gospel out because well first of all they prayed for them isn't it friends persevere in prayer that's a really important part now, there's an old lady who goes to the 7am service in the cathedral she's an old lady doesn't, can't able to do much got bad uh, bad asthma as well I tell you what she prays she keeps ringing me asking me what's happening at Smack give me some prayer points what can I pray for what can I pray for she's partner with us in the gospel she's persevering in prayer for us and for our ministry here don't have to be fit and healthy to do that the Colossian contribution to the work of the gospel wasn't just in prayer they were also to promote the gospel themselves as well in whatever way they could and two things stand out in the way they were to do that and the first one is in verse 5 it says conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders or literally walk in wisdom toward outsiders now Paul's already explained this wisdom thing uh, back in chapter 1 verse 9 and 10 he prayed that uh, the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so they may walk in a manner worthy of God in chapter 2 verse 3 he says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and so from the core of knowing Christ having the wisdom of this in Christ we are then to live a life that is worthy of God that is consistent with the gospel it starts by knowing God and his gospel, knowing Christ, and results in godly walking, living day by day in a way that pleases God. We saw that pattern in, right through chapter 3. Now that is the background for that wisdom walking idea uh, that's already been established in Colossians. Now Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That is, do it in front of non-Christians. Let other people see how Jesus Christ has changed your life. Let your non-Christian friends and family observe how you live and why you live that way. Let them see your love and compassion and holiness and patience and mercy and let them know that you live that way because Jesus first loved you. Let them see that the core of your life is the gospel of Jesus and that changes everything in how you live. Now that's not easy because it requires two things. It means one, you've got to live a life that's consistent with the gospel. You're becoming more and more Christ-like in your character. doesn't mean you're perfect. Don't wait till you're perfect. It'll never happen. But it means that you're walking in a Christ-like direction. And every time you fail, you can still say, I'm sorry, I was inconsistent with what God has done for me in Christ. He is changing me slowly. He hasn't finished with me yet. But the basic direction of your life is towards godliness and purity and love. That's the first thing. And the second thing means that you're doing it not just in church, but in context where non-Christians can see you. 
You're maintaining relationships with unbelievers. There's a friendship where, where they can actually see your genuine character and your growth. And they can find out why that is the case. Walk in wisdom, the Holy Spirit says. Not walk in wisdom full stop, but walk in wisdom toward outsiders. You see, one of the sad facts is that the longer someone has become a Christian, the fewer non-Christian friends they have. That's just the way it is. We just tend to hang out with each other more and more. Now, that is a good thing to do, to hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an important thing for us to do. Fellowship is a vital part of the Christian faith. But, but God did not leave us here on earth only to have fellowship. We have eternity for that. Fellowship is important. Church is important. Vitally important. But we are also here so that other people can come to know about Jesus as well. And that means we have to spend time with them. We need to spend time with our friends. We need to make the effort with our non-Christian family members. With our colleagues of other religions. That is not a waste of time. Relationships with others are... That can be hard, that can be time-consuming, but that is a good use of time. In fact, that is described in our translation as making the best of time. Although literally it's redeeming the times. It's using our time in a way that promotes the gospel. Building relationships with people who don't know Jesus so they can see your life. They can see what Jesus has done for you. They can see your gospel-based motivation for how you live. And friends, that is important. It takes all kinds for the team to work. Like preachers, like Paul, can't build relationships with everyone in the city. In fact, he's going from city to city. How can he do that? Even on a much tinier scale. Here at Spec, I can't build relationships with all your friends. I don't need to because we are a team. When people you are close to see your life up close and personal, and they see your genuine gospel-based motivation, that is very, very powerful. And then you can tell them why. Or you can bring them to church. Or you can bring them to Christianity Explore so that others of us can, can preach to them. Because friends, most people who become Christians don't just do it overnight. They don't just turn up out of nowhere and go to Christianity Explored or a guest night and decide to follow Jesus. And I praise God that happens sometimes. But most of the time people come because they have seen how knowing Christ changes someone else's life. They've seen how you live. They've seen how you love. And then they've decided to hear the gospel which calls you to live and love in the way you do. And then when they hear the gospel, they put their faith in the Jesus who died for them and seek to live that way as well. Make the best of your time. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The second thing Paul says in verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious. 
Or let your word always be in grace or by grace. This, friends, we live in grace, don't we? We live by grace. God has been merciful to us. He has been kind to us in a way that, that we couldn't possibly deserve. We know we are unworthy, but God has chosen us and called us anyway to belong to his Son. And there's nothing in us that made God do that. It's just be kind to us. We are children of grace. And our words must always reflect the grace in which we stand. We have to speak by grace. We have to speak in grace. We cannot speak, therefore, in a boastful way. That is not consistent with grace. We cannot speak in a proud or arrogant way. That is not consistent with people who have been saved by grace. We cannot speak in a bitter and unforgiving way. Because that's not consistent with people who have been saved by grace and who have been forgiven by, by grace. God has been gracious to us. We need to show grace and kindness and mercy and forgiveness in the way we speak. Our words must be gracious. And then Paul describes this gracious speech as being seasoned with salt. Now, that's hard to understand, isn't it? Because Paul doesn't really explain the metaphor. Right? All the commentators I've read suggest it makes... It means making your speech interesting or palatable or appetizing or attractive in some kind of way, but it kind of makes sense, but a lot of this stuff in here is about godliness and suddenly you've got to, you know, be really attractive in the way you talk. I mean, it's, it's hard. And how does that connect with being gracious and why doesn't Paul explain it? How, are we missing something here? Well, I'd like to suggest that I think Paul's got actually something else in mind. Because when you go back to the Old Testament, you find only two references to that concept of being seasoned with salt. The only two other references. The first one is when God was giving instructions about the incense that was being burned in the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle was the uh, tent. It was like a mobile temple before the temple was built. All right. And uh, uh, back in the Old Testament times, there was this temple and there were these priests and, and well, there was this incense. And, and let's have a look and see what, uh, what God said. We saw it actually in our Old Testament reading. I'm not going to try and pronounce the stuff in verse 34. All, right. all these, all these uh, spices. And, and use those spices in verse 35. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And then beat some of it small and put it part of it before the testimony, the tent of meeting, where I'll meet with you and it shall be most holy for you. The incense that is offered to God is seasoned with salt. And then, well, the second reference is when the grain offerings were being offered in the tabernacle. Grain offerings weren't sin offerings, they were, weren't to atone for sin, they were offered simply to please God. Like the New Testament offerings where we offer our lives uh, as living sacrifices. Look what Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, has to say about green, grain offerings. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. I don't think with me, what have they got in common? They're all about holy things to be offered to God, isn't it? That's not part of the Old Testament worship. In Old Testament, the incense you offer, seasoned with salt. The grain offering you offer to please God, seasoned with salt. In the New Testament, 
Let your speech be seasoned with salt. See what Paul's saying? Let your speech be gracious. Because the way you speak to outsiders, that is the incense, that is the grain that you're offering to God. Worship God in the way you speak to other people. Let your gracious words be the sacrifice you offer to God in order to please Him. It's not always easy to speak graciously. Especially when people aren't being gracious to you. But a sacrifice that doesn't cost anything is not a sacrifice, is it? Expect gracious speech to be costly. It may cost you your pride. It may cost you your, your sense of wanting to get back at someone. It may cost you your freedom to explode and lose your temper. But do it. Not just for the person who spoke to you, but for the Lord. As a sacrifice to Him. Do it to please Him. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's an offering to God. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's not saying we will know what to answer everyone. Well, sometimes people say things to us and we don't have a clever answer for it. But, but if we remember that the words we say and how we say it are an offering to God, then we will know how to answer people. That is in a way that is gracious and kind and loving. That doesn't come from a heart of self-seeking or pride or bitterness. In a gracious way. That is a sacrifice to God. We've almost come to the end of the letter to Colossians. Almost, but not yet. Next week we'll look at verses 7 to 18 of Colossians 4. And as we'll do that, we do that, we'll see how other gospel partners have been playing their part in the spread of the gospel. My friends, what have we learned today? What have we been reminded of? What, what resolutions can we make for 2009 in light of this passage? Can I suggest there are three main things. Firstly, we've been reminded to persevere in prayer. To devote ourselves to it, to be steadfast in it. In particular, we've been called to pray for the evangelists and the preachers that we know that, that God would open a door for the gospel for them. And pray that they would make it clear. Let's make it our aim in 2009 to persevere in prayer. To pray for the spread of the gospel. Secondly, we've been reminded of the need for all of us to promote the gospel ourselves. To live godly lives that spring from the gospel. And to do that in front of non-Christians in relationships of love and trust where they can see Christ's character being formed in us. And we need to let them know why we're acting in this way. And as we do that, we need to especially watch our speech. To speak graciously, even when it's hard to do. It's a sacrifice to God for what he's done for us in Jesus. And thirdly, we remind that not all of us have the same roles to play in the spread of the gospel. Paul and Timothy had one role, the Colossians had another role, different ones of us will have different roles too, some public, some will live glorifying lives, will attract others, some will show what, what so they will know what motivates us and empowers us as the gospel of Jesus, and some will do things in between. A bit of both, to lesser or greater extents. Whatever our role is, 
need to pray for each other in our respective tasks. Because we are partners together in the spread of the gospel. And so the formula for gospel growth is really simple. We need to persevere in prayer, watchfully, thankfully, ask God to build his church, and we need to proclaim and promote his gospel in partnership with each other. And then trust that, that he will do that. Let's make 2009 a year that we do that together. We pray and we proclaim and we promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving your Son to die for us on the cross. Thank you that through him and his sacrifice for us we have indeed forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you that we have been seated with Christ and that we have that our life is, is hidden with Christ in you and that when Christ appears we will appear with him in glory. We thank you that you have given us your spirit uh, that we can know you as our Father we can know Jesus as our Lord Thank you that he is changing our hearts and our lives to become more like Christ in our character. Father, we pray that you continue to help us by your Spirit to, to make the changes that we need to make so that we live more and more like Jesus. And we pray that you will give us the motivation to do that in front of our non-Christian friends and relatives to be genuinely open with them that they may see what you have done for us in Jesus and the way we live as a response. And we pray that through that they too will come to hear the gospel and put the trust in Jesus and be saved. Father, we pray for all of us who are involved in uh, sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel in some way or other whether it's publicly or privately help us to do that in a way that is clear so that the gospel of Jesus does come out rightly that people can understand that he is Lord and that he died for us and rose again our Father we thank you for giving us to, to each other as, as partners in this as servants of the gospel together. Father, help us to pray for each other, to love each other, to support each other, to be able to share with each other uh, how we're going in, in, in all these things. Father, we pray that you would build your church and that uh, uh, people would come to know you and that Jesus would be honored and glorified. We ask this for his sake. Amen.